are most cordially congratulating Mr. Robert T. Jones on having won not only the amateur championship at St. Andrews, but being here amongst us this evening as winner of the British Open Championship. The last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. And the best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Talk and Golf History Podcast, the show that brings the past into the present and tries to figure out what it might all mean for the future. I'm Rod Murray and today we'll be delving into an area of the game that every golfer has an interest in, the implements with which we play. There are three things that you cannot play golf without, confidence, a ball and a club. And while the first one might be negotiable, the second two most definitely are not and it is the last one mostly which we'll be talking about Today, in the pantheon of the game's club makers, Carsten Solheim and his now famous Ping Company can hold their head up in any company. And we're delighted to be joined today by the firm's historian, Rob Griffin. Rob will join us in just a moment, but first, some homework and introducing my co-host. The homework isn't as arduous as it sounds. It's really just asking us asking you to share the show with anybody else you think might be interested. If you see a link pop up on Twitter, retweet it or share a Facebook post or even just direct people to the website so they can check out not only this show, but some of our other golf content as well. Second item is questions. We've got quite a few for the last episode. They're not as many this time around. However, keep them coming because we do love them. You can email history at talkandgolf.com, just the one G in Talk and Golf, or post on Twitter using the hashtag TGHistory. I'll put both of those in the show notes, as well as a link to the Talk and Golf website where you'll find some of our other podcasts. I host the State of the Game and I Seek Golf podcasts over there. But if you're sick of the sound of my voice, and frankly I am, uh, you can also find Derek Duncan and his excellent architecture podcast, Feed the ball. Right, let's get on with today's episode, and we'll start by hearing the dulcet tones of my co-host, Connor Lewis. Connor, can you please start by telling the people where they can find you on Twitter and Facebook, and then we'll introduce today's very special guest. You bet. Thanks, everyone, for listening out in podcast land. Uh, Easiest way to find me on Twitter is shistorians, at shistorians, which is the Society of Golf Historians, and you can find us on Facebook at the Society of Golf Historians. It's a uh, private page. Just uh, ask to join, and I'll, I promise you I'll pass you by. We'll get right through and, and, and get you in. Well, well, after it goes to the board, of course, and is debated at yeah, every level board, as, to whether, yeah. as to whether or not people are. Uh, the board is only the voices in my head, and most of them agree. There's always an outlier. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Rod underscore Murray if you wanted to tweet at me as well. That also works for your questions if you tag one or both of us in any questions you might have. Right, let's get on with today's show. Time to meet today's guest. This is an episode that I'm really looking forward to. Rob Griffin describes himself as having played golf for more than 50 years without being very good, and that makes him a welcome addition to any discussion (laughs) that I'm involved with. Rob comes to us from Arizona, where he's the company historian at one of the big four golf manufacturers, Ping. Rob, welcome aboard, and a huge thanks for taking some time to chat. Really looking forward to it. Well, thanks very much, Rod. Connor, it's nice to meet you, and uh, I'm looking forward to having a nice chat with you guys. Indeed. Let's start right at the beginning, Rob. How does one become the historian at Ping? What an unusual role, and I would imagine a very interesting <laughs> one if you're into that sort of thing. Well, um, I started with Ping in 1986. I was hired on as a company photographer, 
And uh, I, I worked as the company's photographer for a number of years uh, up to 2002. So as a photographer, I did all the product photography at the time. I shot some tour events and all, any kind of little corporate outing or, you know, any sort of thing like that. I left in 2002 to try my own endeavor, and that didn't work out. So in 2005, I, I uh, was talking to John Solheim uh, on the phone one day, and he had actually called me about a camera. <laughs> for himself. <laughs> camera nice. questions. For himself, correctly. Uh-huh. Uh, correct. And um, we, you know, before we had a long conversation before I hung up, I said, you know, John, if I know that, you know, someday you'd like to have a museum. And uh, I'd really, you know, I would really enjoy working on that project. And uh, that kind of started the ball rolling for me to come back and be the company historian. Uh Um, Because I had been around for quite a while. My hair had gone from red to white, so (laughs) I thought they they decided... you can be the historian. You were, so. you were qualified all of a sudden. Just to go down a little right. rabbit hole before we get back to the history of the Ping Company, and a lot of people might not realise this, the importance of photography to the big golf manufacturers and the quality of photography that we see in ads and whatnot, I'm not surprised to hear that Ping would have their own photographer, and as you said, a lot of events and other stuff as well and a bit of tour stuff, but just give, a, give people a sense of how important and how much time goes into taking those beautiful pictures we see in the glossy magazines of the products as they're, as they're released and whatnot. It's quite the business, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, what's interesting is when I, when I hired on, I thought I would be doing a lot of uh, photography of tour events and players and things like that. Didn't read the fine print, Rob? The job. <laughs> you didn't read didn't the fine read print? Didn't read the fine print, <laughs> right. exactly. Turns out that... Uh, it, more of my job became uh, studio photography and taking pictures of the equipment. So in some ways, it was on-the-job training. I had some experience in that, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's it's a really uh, – uh, it's not complicated, but it's it's really uh, an, a, a long process mm-hmm. sometimes to get the right picture of the equipment yeah. from the right angle and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, lighting, of course, is – is the really the key to the whole thing. But uh, nowadays, uh, it's nice because with digital, everything's, we do everything digitally, you get immediate feedback. Yeah. When I was doing it, um, we're shooting film, and so you'd, you'd shoot your film, it'd go away to the lab, you'd get it back hopefully the next day. If you had to do any tweaking, you did your tweaking, and you went through the whole process again. The cost of that so, role yeah. is staggering, isn't it? People don't. We, we, same thing in magazines. When, I, when we worked on film, you'd get the slides back, but you were really just, it was fingers crossed, hoping you'd captured the image until oh, you got absolutely. it back. And, whereas you look at a digital camera and go, no, delete, no, delete, no, yes, keep, <laughs> right. no, delete. It's a totally different thing, isn't it? Much less yeah, pressure with digital. Much less pressure. And, you know, the, the cost is maybe not so much with, I mean, it was costly with film, but the cost and time mm. was in, immense. Yeah, indeed. And we actually got to the point here where um, we had our own uh, film pro. We bought our own film processor wow. so that I could process- shoot film in the back, go process it so I could see it within a couple hours. Wow. 
Well, there's and a little... that really helped. Yeah, yeah, that would. We were the same way at magazines. You used to have to wait a day or two. Of course, in a magazine, that's awful. And you might have you might have taken photos of a course in another state, and if they were no good, you'd have to go back. Go back. So <laughs> the, the whole thing relied on these things coming. Uh, that's a little peek behind the curtain. I didn't know we were going to go down that rabbit hole, but I've always found it. Just to give people an idea. To produce a photo, let's say I open my magazine this month when it arrives, I've subscribed to. Golf Australia is the magazine that I subscribe to, partly because they pay me and I work for them, but partly because I think it's the best. And I'll see a photo of a beautiful ping golf club on page seven. How long would it have taken mm-hmm. perhaps to have shot that photograph of perhaps a single club and a couple of photos around it, roughly? What, a day's work? Half well, a day's work? I would say uh, for one shot it might take three or four hours. Uh, depending on the on the shot and what the setup is, you know I'm really not involved with the product work that you see in the magazines anymore. Mm-hmm. I do some pickup things that we need in a hurry for the website or something like that. Um, but the ones that actually the ones that are in our catalogs, um, a lot of the clubs are actually renders from uh, the engineering drawings. What do you mean by as opposed? Well, it's it's actually computer generated image. Ah, right. Oh, renders. I thought you said lenders, as in someone had lenders. No, no, they're going to have yes, grass and dirt on them. <laughs> That's not going to be nice right. To no, it's rendered. Yeah, it's ah, rendered. Oh, there you go. Well, okay. Uh, That's kind of to do with history, isn't it? As in what we do now. A little bit. (laughs) Let's get back to it. Give us a thumbnail sketch of the bones of the Ping Company. There's some really interesting meat on this bone, but let's get a thumbnail sketch of the the broad outline of Ping and how it came to be. I think most people are somewhat familiar, aren't they, Rob? It's it's a reasonably well-known story. Yeah, I I think most people have a good idea of how, you know, this business started as a garage-based business, Karsten Solheim, uh, didn't take up the game of golf until he was in his 40s. Um, but when he did, he, like anything else that he in, took up uh, or, or became interested in, he went at it, uh, you know, just full bore. Um, so he became an avid golfer. And being an engineer, at some point, he decided that the weakness in him, the biggest weaknesses in his game was putting. And, uh, Again, like I say, being an engineer, he, he looked at it from the idea of, well, maybe it's not just me. Maybe it's the tool I'm using. And that's when he started to look at the putter to see how he could improve that. Mm-hmm. And so, that led to, uh, eventually led to the design of his first putter, the 1A putter, so which is bo- the one that goes ping. He's both the engineer and the golfer there, isn't he, Rob? The, engineer, the, the golfer says... Putting's not good. Can't be me. The engineer says there must there must Correct. be a solution that I can build in my garage that'll do this better. Correct. Yeah. God. You know he part and you know part of that is actually because uh, before he was a golfer he was a bowler and he hmm. was an avid bowler. He bowled in three or four leagues a week. Ten, and, and ten he pin actually bowling. Average. You mean ten? Yeah, pin? ten yeah. pin bowling, okay. and he bowled. You know, his average was over two hundred. He was a very good bowler. Wow! Oh wow! Uh, so I, I think when he took up golf and he wasn't very good at it, it really surprised him. It, it, it definitely know, so. the equipment. Definitely the equipment. Yes, it was the equipment for yeah. sure. Yeah. No, no, no question. So, so from there, what, do we know, Rob? I'm sure Caster must have spoken to it, but do we know what his original intent was? Was it to go into the garage, take some metal, use his skills to create something that he could putt better with, or was it from the very outset, 
I think we've been getting it wrong for a couple of hundred years. I can create something that will help golfers everywhere to play better. No, he he actually, what you said to start with, he actually wanted to just improve his own putting. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that came about was, uh, you know, when he started to look at it, he uh, had a regular blade putter. And he attached, what he did was he attached a wire to the heel and toes, and it came back to a point behind the blade. Hmm. And there he put a piece of felt. He laid down a piece of butcher paper, and he dipped the felt in ink, and then he hit some putts, drawing his stroke on that butcher paper. Wow. 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 (laughs) There's the engineer. (laughs) There's the engineer. That's correct. And so in doing that, he discovered that unless he hit the ball exactly on the sweet spot of the putter, the putter twisted. Mm -hmm. So his knowledge of, he had worked on aircraft during World War II. And uh, from that experience, he had worked on a fighter plane that had uh, fuel tanks on the tips of the wings. And he knew from that experience that the plane was more stable when the fuel tanks were full than when the tanks were almost empty. And so he applied that to the idea of the putter, thinking if he got the weight, if he had more weight on the heel and toe of that putter, it'd be more stable. Wow. So what he did was he uh, found a piece of you know, aluminum, and I think one of his friends at GE fashioned a club head out of that, just a simple blade club head out of that piece of aluminum, and then Karsten milled out an area on the sole and the heel and toe, quite a large area, and he filled that those two areas with lead, and then he, of course, shafted it, and... Uh, then when he did that same experiment on the butcher paper, he saw that it worked. Because if he didn't hit the ball exactly on the sweet spot, he could see that the putter was not twisting mm. Yeah, uh, near as much. Which to this day is still so the goal of putters, isn't it? Yeah, so it's still the goal of every putter manufacturer this day, isn't it, is to reduce that twisting at impact. I mean, it gets better and better with each sort of model, but that's the whole point, right. isn't it, to stop the... The twisting. Yeah, just before I let you, sorry, just before I let you Go jump ahead. in there, Connor, I, I can't right. imagine. Did you ever hear Carsten talk, Rob, about that moment? I imagine. Obviously, he couldn't see forward as to where Ping would end up or where that moment would end up. But that first success of having an idea and then it worked. I wonder what that moment must have been like for him. Extraordinary satisfaction, well, I'd imagine. I would. Th- I, I think so. Um, he was used to being. Uh, he was used to doing things that worked. Mm, okay. <laughs> he was. He was very good at, at being an engineer. So I'm not quite sure he was surprised uh-huh. that it worked. I think he knew it was going to work before he did that. But the real surprise came for him later on when he designed the one A putter, which the, that first putter uh, he used for several years. Long, just for himself. Oh, the rough one that was uh, his friend had made for him up at... G- wow. Right. Okay. Yeah, he used that for, for several years, and 
he made that when he was in Syracuse, New York, with working for GE. And he didn't design the 1A putter until uh, he was transferred back to Redwood City, California with, with GE. And then he, uh, he happened to be at Palo Alto Muni Golf Course practicing his putting. He played there often. And the head pro there came out, Pat Mahoney. Mm-hmm. He came out and, and talked to Karsten on the putting green, and he mentioned, you know, he knew Karsten because Karsten played there often. And he told Karsten, he says, you know, I, I've noticed you're really a good putter. And Karsten at that point said, oh, you should have seen me before I made my own putter. And he showed Pat his putter. And uh, they talked about putters a little while, and Reportedly, you know, reportedly, Pat said something to Karsten along the lines of, well, you know, if a guy could make a putter that would start the ball rolling on line, he'd probably sell a bunch of them. So and before this, yeah, I was just going to ask, before this, he has this putter, he's putting amazing with it. It, mm-hmm. it really didn't occur to him that this could be a commercial venture. Is that Correct. fair? Yeah. That's, wow. that's fair, yeah. yes. So when Pat said you'd sell a bunch of them, for some reason the light bulb finally went off. And John Solheim says he 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 believes himself that either that night or in the next couple of days, Karsten made the first drawing for the one A putter. Right now, just before I let Connor at you, because I know he's got a million questions and he's done a bunch <laughs> of research. When we talk about the one A, pardon my ignorance, is this the first answer style, for want of a better term? No. No, no. The one A putter is was uh, designed in nineteen fifty, late fifty eight. Um, it looks it looks more like it's the putter that goes ping. It actually goes ping when when you hit a ball with it, makes a pinging noise, and uh, it looks more like uh, two sugar cubes with two popsicle sticks. <laughs> you know, two sugar cubes between two popsicle sticks. Okay. It has, so it, that's that's the weight on the heel and toe. Right, understood. Now, let's just back up. Connor, I know you've done some research, and I think uh, yeah. Rob alluded to it there, that Carsten wouldn't have been surprised that his putter worked because he was a successful engineer. And, of course, it's the part of the story we probably don't hear enough about. Of course, he, he, he had a long history with GE, didn't he, Connor? I think you've had a look at some of the patents that he might have registered yeah. when he was there. Yeah, that's... That was new information to me, the the patents he had over the years before, obviously, when he was at GE. So when I heard he was inventing, uh, you know, a brand new putter for himself after learning that information, it kind of made sense that he was, as much as anything, an inventor. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very fair to say. So the the 1A, so he's doing the design, uh, he's writing up the design. Uh, he's looking at this now, I assume, as a commercial venture. And from what I understand, he starts, at this point, does he start making them out of his garage? Is that the, the company headquarters, if you will, out of his garage? That's right. Right. So, and, and this is pre-ping. Is this fair to also say? Oh, it's not, not necessarily ping golf yet, right? Well. Or when did that come about? Well, the, the ping came about, what, what happened was, he had his, like I say, he had his drawing, and he uh, again got one of his friends at GE mm-hmm. to weld up a putter head for him out of stainless steel. 
So even, so the very first 1A putter, or the prototype for it, was made out of stainless steel. So Karsten, when he got that head from his friend, he took it home and he put a shaft in it. And he didn't realize at the time that he had actually invented, a, besides a putter, a tuning fork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so when he, when he first hit a putt with the ball, you know, with a ball, and the putter went ping, he was very excited. And uh, he went into the kitchen where Louise was cooking dinner, and she she's told me this story, where she was cooking dinner, and Karsten came in with a putter in his hand and a ball, and he was hitting the face of the putter with the ball, making it go ping. Right. And he said to Louise, he said, honey, I've got a name for my putter. Listen to it, ping. Huh. And she turned over her shoulder, she said, and she said, that's nice, honey. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Was this the first time that Carson had rushed into the kitchen to show her some breakthrough with a putter that she was clearly not particularly interested in? One can only imagine, can't they? Can't you? Him. Yeah, I, I think it may have been the first time with a putter. Right. I'm sure it wasn't the first time yeah. he rushed in to show her something else. I mean, the, the real question is, if the putter had gone whack or clunk, yeah. <laughs> for name. Well, he, that is the question, and my question yeah. has always been, since I've heard that story, was why did he say ping instead of ring? Oh, because sure. it really does ring or, like a bell. Or ding. There's a number of noises there. That's amazing. It's almost providence, I suppose, in a way, Rob, in hindsight, right. which is the only way you can sort of judge these things, but it just seems – because ping, of course, turns out we always associate with it, but it's a fantastic name for a company, isn't it, really, ultimately? It uh, really is. Yeah, yeah so. it really is. Where Rob, where is that putter? Yeah, is great it, question. Do you have it in the museum? I mean, is it does is it known where that putter is? That first ping putter? Oh yes. <laughs> we don't have a museum as of yet. We have right. a, what well, we we have uh, an archive room up here where I am. Yep. Uh, but that putter and the Syracuse putter, as we call it, both those putters are in Karsten's uh, closet in his office. His office is. Uh, Upstairs in what was our main building at the at the time that he passed away, mm-hmm. um, his office. We have kept his office just like it was. Oh, that's fantastic! Left. Yeah. And so, in fantastic. his closet, there are a lot of really great things, mm-hmm. a lot of great artifacts and clubs and things. And those two putters are in there. Did, did he oh, use right. either? Right up until he he stopped playing golf before he passed, or what, did he use whatever the latest ping model was that you'd released? Oh no, he always used he always used whatever the latest the latest one ping right. model okay. was. Right, I'm sure yes, he, was, he was sure he was torn at various times. Says, "Oh, this old fail. I've hold some putts with this. We're all tempted to go to the closet and get an old putter out from time to time, aren't we?" I think he's the only golfer I would know that probably never did that <laughs> the engineer overtook the golf the engineer and him yeah he the his best putter was always his latest putter whatever one he yeah had. what a great way to think about putting was he so uh, let me sorry go, go ahead right no no you go i was just gonna say um so ping I, I always look at this as a you know as i've read about a ping kind of like microsoft is kind of founded out of you know solheim's garage walk Correct. us through if you if you could walk us through from that first drawing to the first ping putter, walk us through kind of like the early days of ping golf out of the garage. And then did he, I guess the first part of that question is, did he really know what it was about to become? 
And then how does how do you transition a company from garage base to one of the best brands in the business? <laughs> uh, well, he uh, once he had his design and he had a mold made. Um, the first ten putters or so that he made were cast out of brass. Yeah. Um, and he was able to place those putters in some pro shops, and they didn't really sell. All locally, I assume. Is he just? Is this? Is this just kind of a, person yeah, like knocking on doors and saying, you know, I've got this great putter. You need to try it. Right. Pretty much that way. It is in yeah. California, you said. Kind of up and down California, California and yeah. also up into Washington and uh-huh. Oregon, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really didn't they didn't sell. Those 10 putters really didn't sell. But what Karsten was doing was he would, he would go to golf tournaments, uh, professional tournaments, and he would hang around the putting green and try to get professionals to try his putter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so one of those brass putters he had had uh, taken and was uh, he showed it to Arnold Palmer, and he was able to get Arnie's attention and to get Arnie to look at the putter and you know, and uh, Arnie looked down at looked took the putter and he looked down at it put it at a dress and he says oh I can't putt with this the face is concave, <laughs> and Carson looked at it and sure enough it was and somehow it it had gotten damaged in transit. And Karsten realized that the brass was too soft. It was too soft a material. So he went to the foundry where he had had the first ones cast and talked to the foundry, the man at the foundry there. And that fellow suggested that he use manganese bronze. Uh, And Karsten was familiar with that alloy from his work with with aeroplanes. and so that's how he started using manganese bronze. And so, yes, to try to get to how the business progressed. Um, so what year was that with Arnold Palmer? Do we know? Uh, Obviously, we, I early believe 60s, that would have been but... 1958. Oh, it would have been. Okay, wow. Oh, wow. Before the majors were majors, the... Connor. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. No, I might have yeah, you shouldn't have gone there. <laughs> <laughs> that bit out, that was a bit. Just to back up a little bit there, Rob, was that mm-hmm. common at the time? We, of course, see it everywhere now. There are representatives from every company with every club at every driving range and every putting green at a professional tournament. But was it common at that time in the late 50s for companies to be at professional tournaments hawking their wares, so to speak, direct to the players? Or did that was that kind of born out of what Carsten did at the time as well? That, you know, I don't know how to answer that exactly. Um, I, I don't think it was real common, but I think it was, it happened more than we might realize. So not uncommon. What I, what I do know was uncommon was the way Karsten dressed versus the way other company representatives might have dressed. Explain. Elaborate Karsten, on that. Yeah, explain. <laughs> Karsten was in his suit and tie. Oof. Okay. Out in the heat in the suit and tie. I love right. it. Right. Right. For a particular um, reason for that, Rob? Was Carl, was he just that sort who just, always dressed? That's, that's the way he had dressed okay. it, as as his work as an engineer with GE and before that uh, wow. uh, different companies. Uh, that was the way engineers dressed in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they did. And and just um, just appro- so, approaching Arnold Palmer mm-hmm. in 1958. I can't imagine would have been necessarily that easy either, or were there 
were there less barriers to getting access to the players to what we see today? Because that that's quite an achievement oh, yeah. in itself, isn't it? Yes, I think there was less. There was there were less barriers, mm. I believe. Mm. And Carson wasn't shy. <laughs> Right. And if you think about it, they didn't have tour vans back then, Rod, and equipment contracts were really, you know, you had like a couple companies like McGregor and Wilson and uh, Ben Hogan Company. Not, well, 50, yeah, you'd have three or four companies, and I don't think a lot of those companies even toured with the pros. You know, right. you just, you had your equipment and you kept it for years. It wasn't like you were always tweaking shafts and, and things like that. So the accessibility may have been, you know, pretty good. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah, I think it, I think it was, and I think even back then, a lot of t- probably maybe only majors were roped. Yeah, a lot of the tour events weren't roped. Mm. Wouldn't you love just sort of? Wouldn't you love to go back to have a look at how golf looked in the particularly the fifties? I think would as a spectator must have been a fantastic experience. Uh, oh, as you I say, without ropes and walk the fairways and, you know, sort of, you can't do it anymore logistically, obviously, but uh, we do it at the Vic Open here each year, Rob, and it is just, to, to be able to walk and watch the players from directly behind is a joy if you're a golf fan. Um, well, it is, and I, I have one experience with that, which is not related to Ping exactly, but after I'd come to work for Ping, uh, so in, in 86 or 87, they used to play a senior event here um, at a club called Orange Tree, and it wasn't a PGA. It wasn't a senior tour event. It was just kind of a senior event. Um, and uh, one Friday afternoon, I went with my boss at the time. We went out to Orange Tree where the senior event was being played, and Sam Sneed was playing. Oh wow! Yeah, and we were able to walk nine holes behind Sam Sneed. As he played right in the fairway. Wow! And that was, <laughs> I, would for, I would pay to watch his yeah. swing all day long, all day. Oh, long. that was the most incredible experience. So, yeah, I can only imagine what it was like at a at a tour event to be able for the fans yeah. to be able to kind of be so close. Yeah, yeah. Did you try to sell him a ping putter? Sam, he'd had his I issues with putting, have. obviously. It was an opportunity right there. Rob, you've missed yeah, it. That's why you're the company well, photographer, not the salesman. Yeah, I'm a lot more shy than Carson was. Uh, so, so, Rob, so, so uh, he shows Palmer the putter. Uh, it's got a concave face. He has an epiphany. We need to get a stronger metal. He takes it back. Uh, you change the metal so you have a, a, a material that you're not going to make concave or dent up or, or damage. Right, you're still paying early days. You haven't really made a dent in the in the market. What what happens? Like, I mean, I, I, first of all, I can't even imagine. Um, from the early days, you know, you know that your putter is the best product on the market, and you can't seem to knock down that barrier. So, what? Ha- I mean, how did he make that next step? Well, I, through persistence, I think more than anything. Yeah. He decided that one of the reasons the putters didn't sell, the first putters didn't sell, it was that they were too light. And the manganese bronze actually helped in two ways. It was much denser and heavier material, so the, the putters were heavier, and so they had a better feel to them. Um, and I think he, it was just pure persistence of going out and, uh, you know, just he... Every they the family talks about when they go on any kind of little car trip, 
they had to stop at every golf course along the way so cars could go in and sell a putter. Love it. Love it. That's the way you got to do it, knock down those doors. Yeah. Right. And uh, they also got uh, some good local publicity, uh, or I guess I'd call it local publicity, um, uh, in the Redwood City. There was a mm-hmm. quite lengthy article written about Karsten and how his putter was the advantages of his putter and everything. And um, there also was an article that little little blurb that ran in Sports Illustrated about a man that had invented a musical putter, oh, which was Karsten's ping. Yeah, and and that little ad, oh, no, or that little blurb. It wasn't an ad, but that little little thing in Sports Illustrated led to an order for 100 putters from a company that they gave to their employees as Christmas gifts. Almost a novelty, wow. in a way. Right. And, yeah. Wow. And so that was the that was Karsten and Louise, uh, Lee's first large order of putters. Wow. How are they being we made, Rob? Is there a production line? Or is he making them by hand? Surely he can't well, be producing them by hand. Each one's, each one's made by hand. A uh, hundred you know, putters. Cast. By hand. Well, they are cast. Yeah, yeah. So those those putters were what they call shell cast, uh, which is similar to sand casting. Uh, so those putters were cast, and so uh, the all the uh, cat, you know, the, the sharp edges and stuff after the casting were all taken off by hand with a file. Karsten did that. Wow. Um, John Solheim, our CEO and chairman, uh, he was. 13 at the time this started and he started helping his dad as did his older brother Alan Alan actually did uh, well let's, let me put it this way the grips for those putters it took a long time to do because what they built up an underlisting using kind of like a thick paper or cardboard and white glue and they built up a, a for the grip they built up around the shaft this underlisting and then on the table saw, they had a they made a cut, made two cuts on the table saw, and then with a file they finished shaping the grip. And then Alan Solheim uh, did the leather wrap, used the leather grip, and wrap those grips were all leather wrap grips. Wow. So yeah, it was a it wasn't an assembly line, but there was a few hands. Uh, People had their duties. Place. Yeah. People yeah. had their duties. Right. Uh, so. That's how they did it. Um, and Louise took care of the business part of it in terms of the shipping and uh, taking care of the bills and all of that sort of a thing, the bookkeeping and keeping track of the orders. And she did the shipping because Karsten had a job. John went off to school. Alan had a job. So during the day, Louise would be there by herself doing that doing the business part of things. So 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 Carsten's still at GE at this stage, going to right. work each day. Oh, yes. Doing his work oh, yes. there and then coming home at night and weekends and running this growing quite right. rapidly by the sound of it part of business. Right. A genuine family small like you would see at a corner store or a fruit yeah. and veg shop or a Exactly. All hands on deck. Now one of the one of the great stories to me, one of the most fantastic things about those early days to me is a story that Louise told me. Um, and she's told, and she she told other people this too. But I, she did tell me this story that uh, Carson and Louise were quite devout. Uh, the you know, uh, God was a major part of their lives. 
Louise um, said she was setting, you know, she was working at the kitchen table doing ping work one day. And she realized that she was getting really kind of irritated about having to do this work. And she was, and she also realized that she was concerned that being in the golf business might not be the best thing for them because it took, she was afraid that golf took people away from church hmm. on Sundays. So she had that concern and, and, it, and she, she thought about it for, you know, that was something that she thought about for a while. So finally one day she told me that she got up from the table and she went into her bedroom and she knelt down by her bed and she prayed about it and asked God for a sign if this was the right path for them. And she said that a few days later she was working at the table and she realized that she was no longer resenting what she was doing and she took that as her sign that it was okay, that this was okay. Hmm. This there was the right way to go. So I thought you were going to tell me, Rob, that she went out to the backyard and hauled 10 putts in a row. <laughs> and that that was the sign that you were really onto yeah, something. But, uh, exactly. A little more subtle than that. Uh, right. So, yeah. But that's, uh, to me, that's really a fantastic story. Yeah. Uh, a tribute to their faith. Yeah. Well, it's, it kind of goes back to... Uh, you know, the the saying, yeah, God is most happy when his children are at play, right? Right, yeah. So it's Very good. Kinda, yeah, she, she would have loved that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, let, me, I'll, let me just interject a little bit here, a little bit of history, sure. Rod, if you were to take a wider look at the scope. So uh, it has been said that uh, two of the most important uh, inventions in the history of putting, by the way, uh, number one, the first one, was Willie Park's bent neck putter which was the first offset putter. And number two, right up there with it, is uh, uh, Car- Carson Solheim's perimeter-weighted putter. Mm-hmm. So just for the listeners out there, that's the importance we're talking about. I think and we may not go into that detail, but those are two of the most important inventions in the history of golf when it comes to putting. So it's a, obviously a very big deal, very big invention. No I think too, Connor, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Rob. But once you sort of know the story of Ping, and most golfers, as we said, sort of do know the story of Ping, there's a, there's a weird connection, don't you think? There's this direct line to Carsten, the, the, the founder and creator of the firm, whose very original intent was what they like to call these days authentic. He just wanted to putt better. And everything yeah, that came after—that's right, not for his that's mates, part. not to try and sell oh, it. All that came later. But there's an authenticity about there that there's just a guy who's an engineer frustrated with golf because he's taken it up late in life and he sees a way that he thinks he can make it better, and he does. And there's a connection there with all of us, I think. Don't you think? You're, you said you're not a very good golfer, Rob, but that's authentic, isn't it? <laughs> you can see oh, him seething on the greens. There's got to be a better way, <laughs> and then oh, doing it. Oh, absolutely. Mm. No, that, there's no question. Mm. I mean, it, he, uh, you know, what 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 that led to for him, I think, is that his goal in building golf clubs was not to be number one in golf club sales. His goal was to make the game easier for all of yes. us, mm. and it's more enjoyable. And that was always yeah. his spoken goal. Yeah. 
indeed. Now, of course, Rob, we could. There's so much to talk about, but at some when does the answer come along? You said we started yeah. with the A1 with the tuning fork, and John Solomon, sure. I've been lucky to meet, meet once, told me that story himself, and another one which I'm going to get you to tell us a little bit later, which is a bit of fun. But when do we progress from the A1? When do we see the answer? Because that's the iconic putter to this day. Pretty much all. And why? All why is it are, called the answer, too? Uh, right? Right? And the answer story is fantastic, but it's the iconic yeah. one, isn't it? When do we see that first? Well, you know, a, a number of models in between the 1A and the answer appeared. Karsten, actually, while he was still in Redwood City, he, he, made, he had, uh, let me think, I think six or seven models. Um, then in 1960, late 1961, so only a couple of years after they're wow. really in business, they moved to, uh, Karsten got transferred here to Phoenix, the Phoenix area, and they moved here, and they, they got a house uh, which was in the county at the time, so it wasn't actually in Scottsdale or Phoenix, it was just in Maricopa County, um, the closest post office was a, had a Scottsdale address, and so that's why those putters from the 1960, late 1961-62 up through 67 had a Scottsdale address. And these are quite Even valuable, they aren't actually, they, Rob? Right. There's a collector's market, and these are quite valuable, aren't they? A Scottsdale oh, address sure. is a rare thing to find, yeah. Right. So in 1966, early 1966, Karsten went to... Um, Actually, I don't know if the tournament was in 66. It uh, might have been late 65. Karsten went to a golf tournament in Los Angeles. I believe it was in Los Angeles. And uh, again, uh, trying to get people to use his putter and uh, doing what he always did. Uh, and he came home from that trip and he told Louise uh, that he needed to find an answer to Arnold Palmer's putter. So oh. if you remember at that remember at that time Arnie had a putter that we now know as the eighty eight oh two, the Wilson eighty eight oh two blade. Yes. Which was very popular at the time. And uh, so Karsten told Louise, I need to find an answer to to Palmer's putter. You know, something to compete with it. And uh, so that's when he Karsten thought you know came up with the design for the answer and that first drawing he did of the answer was actually done on a, a record a 78 uh, record 78 rpm record sleeve the one with the hole and you know the sleeve with the hole yeah. in the middle so we have that drawing that he did and it's on that record sleeve there's like four different views of the putter on that record sleeve wow um so he uh he made a prototype. He made a prototype out of a uh, another one of his models of putters, the Ping sixty nine, which had had been pretty successful so far. But he took a, one of those heads, and he uh, he put a answer style hosel on it, and uh, shape and changed the shape of it some. And when you look at that prototype, it matches the drawings on the record sleeve oh. very well. And he's doing that by hand, obviously. Doing right? that by hand, right? Wow! And you have that to this day. We have that. Yes, we do. Wow. Yeah. I need to see that. <laughs> I can almost hear that coming. Yep. I'm I'm um, on the computer buying my flight right now. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> I'd be happy to show it to you. Oh, amazing! So, 
so the answer so he he had he got his design he had his and he made a mold made a master I shouldn't say a mold he made a master because these were uh, by then he was using sand casting for most of his putters yeah. um, and so it was getting uh, he needed to come up with a name for the putter because he uh, he needed to go to the engraver and have the plates made and he had an appointment to go to the engraver to have the plates made for the their plates that they put in the molds that put in the lettering and stuff. And so he told Louise, he says, I need a, I need a name for this putter. You know, I have to go to the engraver in a few days. And she says, why don't you just call it the answer? And he said, well, what kind of name is that for a putter? <laughs> and, and she goes, well, you know, it's your answer to Arnie's putter. And he goes, no, that's no name for a putter. Huh. And he says, it's, and it's too long. There's too many letters. It won't fit. So uh, that went back and forth for a few days, and finally the, uh, the morning that he had, he had his appointment to go, um, he got up and he told Louise again, he says, I still don't have a name for this putter. And she says, just call it the answer. And he says, well, it's too many letters. She goes, well, just drop the W. It'll sound the same. Unbelievable. And that's how it became the answer. It's a fabulous, uh, <laughs> fabulous story, isn't it? I mean, one can I imagine? I, I just like the I like the family aspect. It's, it's uh, if you're used like a, a architectural reference, it's kind of like Pete and Alice die, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Uh, that's 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 good. Yeah, that's a good. Right. I mean, there. here are these two. Um, yeah, obviously we think of Carson all the time, but you know, here Luis is obviously an integral part of the decision making of this family unit in early days of Ping. It's uh, I, I didn't know all this, which is why you know I've, I've literally got goosebumps on my on my arm. What I like about it, Rob, I, is that it, it makes Carsten very everyman. Here he is at the outset, thinking that he's right, and Louise says, "Try this." He's no, 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 that's crazy. But of course, by a couple of days later, she's man, she's engineered it so there is no other possible outcome. Do you see? <laughs> yeah. Do you see the beauty yeah. of that? No need for confrontation. Oh, no need for any disagreement. She knew eventually that it would happen, and good on her. Yeah. Well done. But that is interesting yeah. because the name is it's, – it's impossible to know what might have happened had it had a different name, but the name is kind of crucial. I think everybody knows what a what an answer – well, we even use it generically. No, it's an answer-style right. putter. So that it was the a bit like that earlier Providence thing. It's the right name at the right time, and it just works perfectly. And, I, and Rod, I, I mean, you look on tour, I mean – I don't know what the percentage is, but it's more than 50% are answer-like putters mm. that all derived from that moment in Karsten's shop. Yeah, in that, I mean, that's to me, abs- that's stunning. Mm. Stunning. And that's what, f- 50 years? That's yeah, absolutely correct. Mm. That That's absolutely correct. F- 50 years. That tells you that he clearly, uh, he clearly got it right. Um, tell us a couple of more facts about the putter quickly Rob, because i wanted to move on of course carsten's most famous for the putter but he's almost as equally famous for irons a whole other yeah. area of the business that blossomed later on what have we missed with the putter are they the main iconic moments or has there been other moments that we need to be no i think you know as far as the answer goes that those are really the well this this is kind of interesting i think about the answer uh, well, a couple things. Um, Karsten, um, in his putters and his early irons, he used what he called a bonamic shaft, mm-hmm. which actually has a double bend uh, up high on the shaft 
kind of under the grip. Right. And it actually bends, the, the bend is towards the golfer and also away from, uh, say, the target. So that it actually gives you a little bit of offset, but it's up at the shaft area. This one, you know, up yeah. at the grip area. Yeah. And what that did, what Carson said that did, was it aligned your hands uh, with the ball instead of the face of the club. So all of his all of his clubs, his putters and his irons, had that shaft. Was this well, something he made himself, Rob, or did he bend them himself? Yes. Right, he made them himself? Yes. Wow, okay. Yes, yeah, we bent, we, he bent them. Yeah, we bent them here. He's annoyingly talented, isn't he, really? <laughs> Is there anything he oh, can't do could, at this if you, stage? <laughs> if you could talk to other engineers about him that worked with him, you mm. would, yeah, annoyingly talented is very good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, but anyway, uh, in 1967, the USGA changed the rule on shafts to where you could yeah. not have a bend more than five inches above where I think where the club attached to the shaft. And so that took care of that, that wiped out that bend up under the grip. And uh, in doing that, it almost put Karsten out of business because the only club he had at the time then that was conforming was the answer. Wow. Huh. So everything else became non-conforming. And so Karsten had to... Uh, straighten a lot of shafts for people and uh, do a lot of things to make it right for people, which he did. And uh, so it, that was a tough time. That that became a tough time. Did, did the USGA um, do that, do we know, Rob, specifically because of what cars – we know what came later with the groove case, which was a specific response to a ping innovation, shall we say, for one mm -hmm. term. Was this the same? Was this the USGA discovering what Carson was doing under the grip and saying – no, or were there other things in the marketplace that affected that decision? There were, there were other things in the marketplace. Right, okay. The croquet putter, for one. Uh -huh. Yeah, they you know they really didn't like the croquet no. putter. <laughs> um, no, they did not. Yeah, they didn't like that. So that they didn't that like they didn't like side saddle either. But that got through back in the days when right. you could just outlaw stuff and it would be outlawed. Anyway, let's not go right. there. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I. Um, I believe John Solheim would tell you that, uh, I know he would, he would tell you that he also believes that rule was aimed at Karsten. Uh -huh. Sure. So there's a history perhaps for some of the tension between the USGA and Ping that we yeah, see. Yeah, so it maybe is. Yeah, okay, but, interesting. Uh, so anyway, um, and then the, uh, just, to, just to kind of give you an idea, all, all of these putters, all these answer putters were the Scottsdale address. And all of the putters before that with a Scottsdale address right. were all still done in the in the in the family garage. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, we didn't move. Ping didn't move into uh, separate headquarters from the house until uh, the end of 1966, when they leased the first building here on our what we call campus now. Mm -hmm. And so that's the first time they actually moved the business out of the garage. And, um, so it's nearly a decade. Actually, That's a yeah, decade yes. of operating from well, home. 59 to 66, okay. actually. Yeah. yeah, seven years. So, so in 1966, Rob, mm -hmm. in 1966, yes. how, how big is Ping? Do we know? I mean, is it, is it, is it more regional or is it national? Um, you know, has the grip on how great the, the answer putter or, you know, all the putters that you've produced, is it reaching coast to coast or is it still – 
you know, um, Solheim knocking on doors and, and meeting with pro shops. Well, it's it's there's there's still that, but yes, I think it had it had it had started to reach nationally. Yeah, um, he could. Yeah. In in sixty seven, sixty seven is kind of the pivotal year, I think, because in nineteen sixty seven, uh, Julius Boros won the Phoenix Open using a ping cushion putter, um, and it got a lot of. Uh, a lot of press because here this guy won the Phoenix Open using a local company's yeah. putter supposedly and stuff but it, Carson's Carson's putters had been on tour for a while now and the cushion what we call the C cushion which is cushion spelled with a C or the K cushion which is cushion spelled with a K those two putters uh, had actually they'd had success the Ping 69 uh, putter which came out in 62 that putter actually won on tour. Uh, won, that was the first ping putter to win on tour. John Barnum won the 1962 Cajun Classic uh, using a ping 69 putter. So it was really just a feel-good story of local company wins local PGA. Right. That really, right. yeah. Big name player, too. Boros would yeah. help, too, wouldn't it? I mean, it's the difference between Absolutely. Not, not to be oh, yeah. disparaging Dudley Hart winning in Quad Cities versus Ernie Els winning at <laughs> you know, Connecticut or something. That's that's kind of that sort of difference, isn't it? I mean, Boris was a and big actually, name. Yeah, and Jack Nicholas actually used a C cushion to win four tournaments. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. What mm-hmm. sort of era was that? When when are we talking? Um, oh gosh, I could look those years up, but it was it was late sixties. Okay, because sixty two huh. he turned pro, didn't he, Nicholas? So it would have been mm-hmm. sort of beyond that. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, sorry, we we interrupted you there, but that's uh, all these no, little that's- moments, Rob. There. I suppose every successful business has this. All these fortuitous moments that had they not happened, what might have happened? What path might have? Oh yes, yeah. You just no, can't. You uh, don't know, do you? Our history, our ping history, is filled with these types mm. of moments. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, we could, you know, you could literally talk for hours about all yeah. of these moments, different different things that happened, and, I think and what it uh, meant. I think and was, what it meant, that's and right. how fortuitous. Like you know, I can't say that word myself, but how lucky <laughs> we all were. It's funny, you know. Oh, I, I get it. I read a story just recently. They'd done a study on what was the most, um, the most reliable sort of pointer to whether people would be successful. And funnily enough, it was luck. You had to have some other so, things, but but luck mm-hmm. is by far the greatest indicator of success. Most people are successful. At some point, it's been a stroke of luck uh, that's that's helped them to get there. Anyway, that's well and truly off the path. So the 60s is the part. When do we start to see casting? Because I'm just having a look. You're right. We could talk for hours. We've been at it for nearly an hour, and we haven't moved <laughs> off 1966 <laughs> as yet. And that was 50 years ago, fellas, 50 yeah, years right. ago. So. Let's yeah. move on. A sixty-year-old company. It's amazing. Yeah. This year, right? Is it? That's right. This Sixty year, right. years this year. Yeah. Well, um, uh, amazing stuff. So, so we know. So the putter's having some success and a bit more commercial. He's had this problem with the USGA, but the answers helped you. When do we start to see Carsten turn his mind towards irons and other parts of the game? Is it the two that well, he's surprisingly first- enough, he turned to irons in nineteen sixty-two. Right. Oh. Okay. The first the first set of irons were uh, nineteen sixty-two. Uh, they were uh, uh, the it's the Ping sixty nine model. Uh, he, he named them that because he thought sixty nine was a pretty good golf score. Mm-hmm. The heads were uh, actually forged heads uh, that he got from. Uh, he was able to get the heads from Golfcraft, which later became Titleist. Oh, uh, a man named Ted Woolley at Golfcraft 
help Karsten uh, with uh, acquiring heads, getting heads. And so we would get the heads, and then Alan Solheim would mill out. Uh, the 69 had a double cavity in the back. Um, Alan uh, would mill out this cavity that Karsten had designed, of course, um, so that the club was perimeter-weighted. And then uh, after the milling, they would go back to Golfcraft to be chromed. Then they'd come back to us and be assembled, or come back to Ping and be assembled. And so, again, in 1962, that's in the garage. Um, and so that was, uh, we, we believe there was probably about 200 sets of those made. Oh. And did they sell mostly right. at retail or? They yes. To, right, yeah. okay. So people bought, wow. So there's, there's some out there and the, somewhere, <laughs> Rob. Oh, yes, and which they're, is, they're quite collectible. Yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine. Yeah, Rod, uh, if you remember right, Rod, we have a gentleman on Facebook, on our Facebook page, that has four of those clubs that he posted. Four clubs or four oh, sets? Four, no, no, no. Four of those clubs. Four clubs. I think right. he has the four iron, the seven iron. And maybe the eight and nine. He posted the photos of them, and they were just the heads. Okay. And uh, oh. after after I woke up from passing out, <laughs> I uh, told him that was remarkable. <laughs> You'd have a set of those um, there, Rob. Oh, I headquarters. We yeah. have several sets. Several, right? Uh, and we have a. Then the second model uh, would have come out, I believe, in '64. It's the Ping '68. So an even better golf gonna, <laughs> He's yeah. kind of committed yeah. now, isn't he? Love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, so uh, those heads actually came from, I believe, Fernquist and Johnson. And those heads have a much larger single cavity milled out in the back. Um, and we actually have a set of those that belong to Karsten's half-sister um, that are virtually unhit. Oh wow. wow! Okay, and and so those are those are really remarkable to look at. Really they actually are. still have the plastic bags on the on the oh. on the uh, grips. And so I'm just picturing in my mind what these might look like, Robert. We're starting to move to what's we what we would consider quite a standard kind of cavity back iron today. Oh, absolutely! This... Yeah, that has a that's a very that's a large cavity. Right. Yes. So we can start to see what we see is. It, Again, what set the trend? We went from the blades to the to the cavity for most of us recreational players fairly quickly, didn't we? Once once they'd started right. to become popular, they really once they started. Yeah. yeah, Rob, are uh, they are they would they be considered the first cavity back irons on the market? I believe so. Yeah, I think I you're right. So yeah. yeah. So I mean, for you at home, uh, if you look at your irons, unless you're a Three handicap. You are playing a uh, another derivative from uh, Ping Innovation is your cavity back clubs at home. That, that's correct. Yeah, that's indeed. correct. How did they sell, Rob? The sixty eights. Um, those, as far as we know, I'm not sure of the number of those that sets that went out. Those had woods also. Uh, the, the, all the all of his irons there were woods that went with them, but oh. they weren't. The woods weren't designed by Karsten. Uh, again, he got the heads. Uh, all the woodheads came from Fernquist and Johnson for all three of the forged iron models. The, um, but when they got the heads, the woodheads, what they would do is uh, they would take the, the sole plate off and they would drill holes at angles and fill it with uh, weight. 
So they would try to weight those woods change the characteristics in a perimeter of, sort of way also uh-huh. and put the soul yeah. plates back on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's amazing, right, that you look at it. I mean, from the ping uh, 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 putter technology to the irons and to the woods, being on the forefront of perimeter weighting when nobody else is really, you know, uh, it's not top of mind. Everyone's working on a sweet spot of less than right. a dime. And Ping is, from the very beginning, the very beginning of the company, thinking about how can we expand this for the golfer. It's yes. amazing. Yeah, it, it, like I say, Karsten was always trying to find a way to make the game mm. easier for all of us. We, we probably can't know this, Rob, but I think about the other manufacturers of the time, and I wonder, I suppose, the Hogan company particularly springs to mind, where it's Ben Hogan who's driving whatever innovations. He's hitting the club saying, that design feels good, that one doesn't. Is there something mm-hmm. perhaps in the notion that Carsten's what we might call a recreational or a regular Joe golfer who comes from a very different place and his relationship with the clubs needs to be different just because he hasn't got that level of skill? I wonder if there's something in that. We may never know, I suppose. I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um... Because if you've got two approaches dictating design at all of the other manufacturers, it would be not surprising to see clubs coming out with characteristics that suit a touring pro. So they wouldn't worry about the size sure. of the sweet spot because they find it all the time anyway. So they would be looking at more yeah. aesthetics perhaps. And I wonder whether there's anything in that, whereas Carson's really playing like the rest of us and you know, struggling to find the centre of the face and thinking of ways to improve the strikes that aren't in the centre of the face. I don't know. I might be wrong, but that seems... No, I, you know, I think, I think there, you know, there's something... Like I say, because his goal, again, was to design a club that was easier to mm. hit... But he he uh, he always sought uh, information from pros. He always sought feedback from pros on how how does you know how does my equipment feel to you? You know he would he would have pros try his equipment, test his equipment all the time, mm. uh, and then you know later you know as as time went on, you know he designed his own robotic golfer, you know the Pingman to to do our testing with this is really down a rabbit hole or off on a tangent but i wonder whether philosophically carsten changed the game in some ways from if you'd gone to ben hogan and said i find your clubs difficult to hit i suspect his response would have been get better at swinging the club <laughs> I, I would i would have said, i think he would have said go start playing uh start bowling that's right like, or so, yeah or something yeah. similar whereas carsten's response is well let me see if i can help you with that and philosophically that's a huge shift isn't it? i wonder whether we did see a a real change where we can the the equipment can overcome some of the flaws in your game without you needing to. And that's philosophically quite a shift, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a, mm. it's a huge shift. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's looking at it from an entirely different mm. point of view. I, yeah, interesting. I, you know, I think it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Rob, on that same point, um, and I might be jumping a forward here in years. Maybe, I, I really don't know. But one thing that we as golfers, I, I don't want to say take um, – just, you know, don't think about anymore, but we just know we have to do it, is getting fitted, right? I mean, it's it's, it's home today. There's all these different fitting shops. Uh, you know, your local pro won't put you in a set of irons uh, unless you're fit for them and the, the bend, the lie, the length. And again, I mean, getting back to this, the everyday golfer, Ping is again on the forefront. I mean, they're, they were the first that I'm aware of company to really try to fit putters and irons to the player. Can you walk through 
like when did that start? Did it just start with putters? Did it start with irons at the same time? And then how was that philosophy, you know, started at Ping, and how did it, you know, kind of get to the public? How did how did that all occur? Um, well, Karsten fairly early on figured out the geometry of loft and of lie angle and length of shaft, and he realized that the lie needed to be different for different people because everybody's not built the same, obviously. Right. And he, he discovered that, you know, he, he, he came to that point early on. Um, and so even though he didn't come out, we didn't come out with the color code system until 1972, even early on, he he would uh, he had a, a device that we actually sold called the gauge, which was basically our loft and lie gauge. Um, and so he would when when uh, how, let's see before I get confused here, what would happen is uh, when players would come to Phoenix to play the Phoenix Open, a lot of times they would come to Karsten's house, uh, bring their bring their clubs, not. Wouldn't have to be pin clubs. They bring their clubs. Wow! And Karsten would measure and adjust their clubs because, you know, what he would what he would say to them is, okay, what what's your favorite club in your set? What club do you feel the best with? Smart. And they smart. And they'd say, well, you know, like my seven iron. I feel really good with my seven iron. So he would measure all the other clubs against their seven iron, and he would sometimes find that they had two five irons in a set or two seven irons in a set or that the clubs, the, the lofts were off. Yeah. And also he would also work with them on their Y angle so that, you know, the, the club wasn't, the toe wasn't up in the air or the heel wasn't up in the air. He realized that the importance of that because of, of arm length and shaft length. And so he started doing that. Uh, for for uh, professionals and for you know other people that'd come to the house and he would he would do that for them and and often there's stories of often a, a tour pro would come here and uh, Karsten would adjust their their clubs and they'd go out the next week or two and win because now their set was all adjusted. Mm. And, and, I'll tell you right now. But just I'll back off the now, microphone a bit there. Connor, back up a bit from the microphone. Yeah. You're getting a bit excited, a bit clipping there, mate. That's no, I, I'll tell you right now, Ben Hogan wouldn't have done that for somebody who wasn't playing his equipment. That's a fact. <laughs> no, it's true. That's, that's, that's very, true. Very, both contributed okay. to the game in different ways, perhaps, I think, is, is how we might I've best describe heard, that. Yeah, I've even heard that Johnny Miller came to the house. Yes, I've heard that too, uh, which would make which would make some sense. Um okay. Yeah, because we, we know how Johnny Miller dominated on, at the de- on the desert here. Uh, just an iron striker. Extra- we hadn't yeah. seen anybody strike irons the way Johnny Miller did for that period. That he was just just ruthless and fearless, uh, an extraordinary distance control and amazing. Particularly when you consider the ball that was in play at the time, just a remarkable player. What's the first set of ping irons that really starts to perhaps take hold? I think we all remember the copper beryllium I twos, but yeah. is there? Is there a ping iron before that that perhaps oh, that sure. sort of started that, the trend? That, rather, than, That's global, obviously. By that time, we're, in Australia, we're paying, I'm going to say mm-hmm. in the early 80s, Rob, over $2,000 Australian dollars for a set of copper brilliant, and you couldn't get them for right. money. They were walking off the shelves. Right. It's extraordinary. Right. 
Right. Um, well, before the I-2, there was the I, and before that there was the what was called the Karsten 1, the Karsten 2, the Karsten 3, and the Karsten 4. These were all investment cast cavity back irons. Um, and with the K1s in 72, uh, they came out in 69, but in 72, Karsten introduced his color code system, um, which had to do with the lie angle for people, you know, so that uh, if you we didn't want the club to be too up or too flat and made a difference to which way the ball went from early on with the color code system Karsten talked about ball flight and uh, you know how important it was that the the lie angle be correct for you uh, so that you'd hit the ball where you're aiming so that started uh, those those were very popular you know the, we, we sold quite a few of those mm-hmm. I know we did and uh, I mean thousands of sets um then the eye iron was the one the one just before the i2 uh, where the cavity got even larger and yeah. the perimeter weighting became more extreme and then of course the i2 in 1982 uh, was the iron that you know was the one that really like you say it became so popular uh, we couldn't keep up with production uh, we were weeks behind or months behind and like I say, I started in 86. I started here in 86. And uh, shortly after I started, um, one day I got a phone call to come up to the production area, to the iron assembly area. They wanted to take a picture, a group picture of all the employees. And I got up there. And the reason they wanted a group picture was that day they uh, produced 10,000 irons in one day. Wow. One day. Wow. One day. Oh, you know, to and, this day. To this day, the I2 putter, I, I would own and play one of those sets. I don't have one. I just think it's the most distinctly cool-looking irons in the history of the <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very, that's true. I think they are very distinctive. And once they hit that 10,000 mark, yeah, they did that day after day, day after, after day. day. You know how many they, wow. they moved. I've got a set myself, which I bought mm, three, four years ago. Had them sent over me, the I2. I two plus, of course, because we know what happened with the. Why the material, Rob? Why the beryllium copper? Where did that sort of? Come? Um, that, that's what made them so distinctive, and they age so beautifully. The patina of them oh, now is just so magnificent. Yeah. They're lovely. Well, but. you know, they originally were. Uh, we offered them in stainless steel. Mm-hmm. Kirsten offered them in stainless steel to start with, um, and then I don't know if you, you you guys probably remember, but there was a. a, a, a time there where uh, lightweight clubs became. Uh, kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, the feather, Dave Pels, I think, had feather lights or something like that. And so Karsten uh, kind of believed in that himself. He he believed in a lighter weight. You could swing it faster and the ball would go farther. Um, and so we had the the ping easy lights. And so those uh, that head is actually the is a little different than the I2 head. It looks the same to most of us, but the way it's perimeter weighted and stuff is it's a little little different so it produces a, a lighter club head when you when you cast it the heads themselves are actually a bit lighter um, but then uh, some of the tour pros to start with they they uh, they wanted a heavier head and uh, Karsten had had uh, had several companies trying to interest him in beryllium copper as a metal that he might use. Um, 
is a clubhead material. And so one of the reasons he had kind of not done that was because they were the heads were too heavy because the copper's yeah. denser. Mm-hmm. And so once he developed that easy light mold, the lighter head mold, he went, oh, if I pour that copper in that mold, now I've got the right weight and the copper, which has a, a nice feel and a, you know, a distinctive look. And so that's how, that's how the copper, the beryllium coppers mm-hmm. came about. And how many years did we have those for? I think there was also some, uh, the Ping Zings might have been made in beryllium copper. Uh, well, let's see, well. the, uh, the uh, Zings were in, uh, yeah, the Ping Zings were in beryllium copper, and then the Zing 2 was not in beryllium copper other than we had some wedges, right. some Zing 2 wedges. Okay. But then also the ISI. That's which, right, the uh, ISI is the one I was thinking of, yeah. The ISI was actually available in stainless steel, beryllium copper, or beryllium nickel. Oh, beryllium nickel. Oh. What does that look like? I'm not sure if it does. It look like the beryllium it, it copper? Looks, or is it? It looks. Yeah, it looks. No, it looks like uh, looks more. It looks like stainless steel, pretty much. Uh-huh. Um, we we would, in order to tell them apart, one of the things we did instead of painting uh, the lettering and everything uh, in white, like we did the others, uh, the beryllium nickel were painted in gold. Ooh, for the collectors out there. Oh, interesting. That's something yeah, to yeah. keep an eye. A little detail that'll help you in your uh, in your travels. So the, yeah, the beryllium nickel has a. Uh, the coppers feel great. The beryllium nickel feels even probably better. Right. Okay. And the issue with the beryllium, I think it became a, the beryllium was an issue at some point. Was it the grinding of it? That they realised that there was some health issues, right. and that's yes. why they stopped yeah, using no, it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, um, and Rob, I wanted to ask you. I know that, and then of course we've had series of um, ping iron since then. It, it seems the innovations do they come faster in the more modern era once we get to the nineties? It's it feels like. They do, and it feels like all of the companies are on a. Are you making oh, some I noise there, Connor, I in the background? Sh- Connor, no, nope, not you, me. Are you, Rob? Are you <laughs> cutting something with a pair of scissors? <laughs> I hear that though. Uh, oh, I, yeah. You know what? I was, I was caught. Like, not cards. Cease, never mind. Cease <laughs> yeah, and desist immediately. <laughs> Sorry for all that. That's okay. Um, do the models? Do, uh, do we ramp up the innovations in models and the time? But between models, or does it just feel that way as we go through the 90s? No, and the I, think, I think definitely we've had more innovations come along faster, mm-hmm. and, and mainly because um, I, the te- it's so much more uh, – the testing has become, uh, I don't want to say easier, but uh, the feedback is quicker. Is it a bit like the digital photography, Rob? It's, right. it's quicker to <laughs> to create and test and know instead of it being a three day process. It becomes a half hour process. You can actually do virtual testing. Yeah, we we do uh, on uh, when we're designing club heads. The engineers work with uh, um, it's called uh, finite uh, analysis, and on the computer they can actually test for strength and density and that sort of thing. Mm. So that they can uh, they can see they can get a good idea to start with if something's going to be too weak too strong if they can take weight from here and move it to move here to and that. still have the strength that they need yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, it must be you daunting don't have to go through no the go lengthy ahead. processes. It must be daunting to be a, 
an engineer at a golf club manufacturing company, I would think in a lot of ways, you must feel at times like there's almost nothing left. I'm sure there is once you get it, but you must sometimes feel like, what hasn't been you know, done I yet? Don't think our, I don't think our guys look at it. Our, no, no, I'm sure I'm they sure. don't. I'm sure, they don't, I'm sure so. our guys don't look at it that no, no, way. They, uh, that's a, that's an amateur state. What is great, <laughs> yeah, what is great, though, about our engineers is sometimes uh, some of them will come up here to the archive room where I am and look at what we've done before. Oh, that's oh, neat. Nice. Just to the, and, you know, I have a lot of things in here that were experiments that Karsten or John and Karsten or Alan did that didn't make it to market. Uh, and so sometimes the engineers, the younger engineers, will come up and take a look at something. Or John will send them up here to look at something. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> uh, again... Again, booking my flight now. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Turn that microphone down, Connie. You've, you've gotten a bit loud oh, for I, some reason, my friend. No, I, I jumped into those. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I kind of eat the mic when I get excited. You get a bit enthusiastic, don't you? Um, yeah, I, it's all I, right. I told Rob this story when I spoke to him, but there's, this might have to be a two-part of this. We've got still too much to talk about to, to go. I told Rob this story the other day, Connor. I was lucky enough to meet John once, John Solheim, at the magazine head office here in Sydney. He was in Australia and we were going to do an interview with him. So he arrived at the office and reception called upstairs where we were and said, you know, John Solheim's here. And I came down to meet him in the foyer and Rob giggled when I told him this. I, I got out of the lift and John Solheim was there with his back to me and he was just staring at a chair that was in the reception area. And I sort of went over and introduced myself and I said, is there something about the chair? And he just looked at me and he said, the engineering of those legs is quite remarkable. <laughs> this is what he was doing while he was waiting for me. His eye clearly and his mind never stopped thinking in those ways, Rob. And I'm, I remember, I think I started my story with that. that that's just how them, the minds of, oh. in that family seem to work, isn't it? I mean, he's not doing anything else. So he's just standing. The, the, curios- yeah. right. the curiosity is, is never stopping. Mm, it, extraordinary. it never ends. I want you to tell me the story he told me that day about how anybody who's got a pink putter or has seen one in particular, or any pink product actually, you'll see the little man who's on the, the grip of the ping putter, yeah. the little squat guy. Tell us the story of how he came into being, Rob. Mr. Ping. Uh, yeah, that's Mr. Ping. The way he came into existence was uh, one day uh, John Solheim was playing with some clay. This was when he was a young, young man. He's sitting in the office uh, at a desk, and he had some clay that he was kind of playing with. And he was—he actually started rolling up little bits of little balls of clay and was throwing it at one of the secretaries. <laughs> <laughs> Productive use of time. And sounds, and so sounds like my office. Yeah. <laughs> well, you haven't got a secretary so, anymore. <laughs> yeah. So finally, she picked up one and threw it back at him. She says, "Why don't you make something with that?" And so he sat there, and with this clay, he sculpted this little golfer, um, and uh, he put a little hat on it, kind of a hat like his his dad used to wear. He told me, and um, so he sculpted this little golfer. It's only about he still has it. Uh, oh, it's wow. in his office. Uh, it's only about three inches high, four inches high, maybe, and. Um, Anyway, he sculpted this little golfer, and Karsten walked by and saw it, and he looked at it, and Karsten was getting ready to go off on one of his uh, summer trips, which was a world trip where him and Louise would go off around the world. Sounds like a vacation, but it was a sales trip. 
<laughs> I was going to say, with, with a suitcase full of putters to knock on pro shop doors right, in other parts stopped, of the world. They yeah. stopped everywhere talking to foreign distributors and uh-huh. stuff. Um, so uh, Karsten told me, he says, when I get back, I want you have done, to have done something with that. So, hmm. so uh, what happened was uh, John's brother, Alan, uh, made a bigger bigger version uh, out of, uh, I don't want to say paper mache, but something along those lines, but a little more stable than that. And uh, so it became this little statue that we set out in front of the building. And then um, one of the fr- a friend of the family did a two D drawing, a two dimensional drawing of it. And that became our logo. Good logo. It became How about that? Logos. That's amazing. Uh, uh, to and me, playtime, right? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Although it it does tie does tie into what we were saying, wasn't it, Rob? About the uh, and, and it's certainly John and his dad cast from the same. John told me that they both always had on their desk a lump of modelling clay in case an mm-hmm. idea for a new shape of an iron or something can they could pick it up mm-hmm. and with their hands form it. Almost like somebody might sketch something, but they always had a lump of modeling clay on the desk for that specific reason. I always found that intriguing. That's a, that's uh, quite a way to look at the world, is it? So always be at the ready to to make up a club head in modeling clay and then go down to the design of the entrance and make this. (laughs) Yeah. Create this for me. Sometimes, yeah, no, sometimes John, John still has clay on his desk. Wow. And, uh, Sometimes, rather than maybe starting from scratch, he'll take an existing club head and start to add to it, <laughs> right, <laughs> or something. Yeah, you know. quite, um, quite extraordinary. It's almost like a calling rather than a job, isn't it? I mean, that's that's never getting a break, is it? Your mind never letting you take a break is uh, is quite remarkable. I also wanted to ask you, Rob, about that time when we'll come to the the groove case at some point, but when Ping dabbled with the golf ball, and of course they'd have a dual coloured golf ball. To be different, tell mm-hmm. us tell us about the history of Ping with the golf ball. It was an experiment that didn't last particularly long, I don't think, and uh, no surprises given the com- competition in that category. Perhaps um, where did that sort of stem from? Well, in uh, 1976, I think it was Karsten bought a company called TrueSphere, and he moved all their equipment here, and he also hired their one of the guys that worked there, a guy named Buzz Piaski, hired him, moved him out here to hit our golf ball uh, division. And uh, so they worked on uh, design of golf balls together, Karsten and Buzz. Uh, so I think in 77, we came out with the first golf ball, ping golf ball. We actually there were four of them, four different versions of it. Um, that had you know that were actually ping design golf balls. Before then, we had there was some, we had balls that said ping on them, but they weren't they weren't, they ping, weren't ping, ping designed, yeah. right? Um, so that was the start of it, uh, and they kept at it. Um, one of the things they developed uh, to test golf balls was pretty interesting. Um, now I've forgotten the name of it, but it was a, a device that uh, used some sort of flywheel, and it would it would throw golf balls out in the air, and you could get about eight balls in the air all at once before one of them hit the ground. Interesting. And, yeah, they used 
that was that was a pretty neat device to watch and actually had taken a picture of it where I got maybe six golf balls in the air where you could actually see them out there but uh, so they 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 Carson was very serious about building a quality golf ball a good golf ball um, and I really believe our golf ball was a good golf ball um, the two color came about you know I think Wilson may have started the color thing with they had some yellow and orange balls mm-hmm. and uh, so Karsten decided to make a, a colored ball. He, he had a yellow-orange, a yellow ball, and a orange ball, and then a white ball. That This was the iGolf ball, so it was. this would have been about 1982 or so, I believe, maybe 83, 4. Um, but at the same time, he decided to do them in two colors. So we had a yellow and white, an orange and white, and a yellow and orange which Car- that was Karsten's favorite, and we called it the Ping Punch. <laughs> so um, the golf ball uh, kept they kept working on the golf ball, coming out with new ones and better ones. Um, but as part of our customization uh, program that we offered to pro shops and and places, we uh, we started to offer. Uh, golf balls in whatever two colors or one color they wanted, because uh, hmm. we could we're making our own covers, of course, and we could make them whatever color they wanted. And so that's why we ended up with and and we also pad printed logos on the balls. Uh, we could we could print uh, up to five or six colors in register in a logo on a golf ball. Again, uh, with the customization. Right, with the customizations. Right. Yeah. So one of our biggest customers for uh, customized golf balls was Pebble Beach. Oh, did not know that. Uh, so anyway, we, that went on for a long time, and, and you guys probably know now that ping two-color golf balls or even the, some of the solid colors are quite collectible. Very much so, yeah. They, yeah, they've gone for some pretty high dollars. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately, I know where there are at least a dozen sitting in a cornfield in Rockford, Illinois. Because <laughs> I there. When I first picked up the game of golf, I, I, I started hitting them out into a cornfield uh, in my in-laws' place. And uh, unfortunately, there are a couple of those out there. I'm sorry. So you know where uh, my in-laws live, folks. You, there's a treasure to be found. Yeah, treasure man. to be found. That's right. <laughs> there, um, you, there you go, indeed. When did they stop making the golf ball? That's well, a we category. Making that's... golf balls, uh, I believe in '96 Six, yeah, was the last yeah. time we made golf balls. Yeah, incredibly um, competitive category. That one, yeah, yeah it was. In, yeah, it was just so competitive, and that is a time a time when John took over from Karsten. Uh, mm-hmm. Karsten's health was failing, and John had taken over, and uh, John wanted to get back a little bit to because we were had several other different sub, uh, you know, subsidiaries besides. Uh, golf John kind of wanted to cut those back and get back to the just core. our strength what do you mean yeah, besides the core business golf what do you mean besides golf what outside of the golf industry oh uh, well we had we were uh, we had a uh, very high tech machine shop uh, that uh, with very large milling machines and uh, that we worked on some military subcontracts for Wow. Companies like Hewlett Packard and people like that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Missile guidance systems and things like that. 
Um, <laughs> right. You just dropped really, that in casual conversation as though, <laughs> as you would. As you would. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, so that was one of the things that we, John decided we wanted to get away from. We wanted to get back to our core because I guess, business. I guess, roots. Rob, I mean, it's fairly obvious Carsten was not just an engineer or a good engineer, quite a gifted engineer. And he, ultimately, his gifts best known for what he's done with golf and john is somewhat similar i know that that uh, he's mm-hmm. not he's not a carbon copy of his dad by any stretch but he's got a lot of the same characteristics particularly in the way that his mind works they're minds that are in demand in all sorts of industries aren't they that kind of engineering oh, now sure. and yeah. know-how it's almost remarkable sure. that ping kept going <laughs> i imagine that carsten was fairly well regarded at ge uh, and probably could have stayed there his entire yes. life had he wanted to and he made was. a very comfortable living Doing that, yeah, he so. was he was pretty highly regarded there. Mm. Um, I, I know he was. Mm. Um, you know, it, one interesting thing about Carson as an engineer is uh, some of the other engineers. Uh, one, you know, like in the, you know, when I first started, um, and and after even after that, some of the engineers that worked with Carson. A couple of them mentioned to me some a couple of times that you know sometimes they, Karsten would tell them to do something you know how to do something, and they they said you know we would even in our own minds kind of question if he even knew the rules of physics. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and then and then we would try it, we'd do what he told us and it would work. And it would work, and so, we had to re- we had to realize we had to look at it from where he looked at it. Mm how he saw it and once once they were able to do that they could see oh that's why it works i mean and not to jump in here i was gonna say if you're gonna mix two technologies i'm thinking missile guided system and golf ball <laughs> seems to be well <laughs> seems to be a good fit for my game it's funny isn't it rob because my understanding of much of the golf industry the boom in technology that we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s was that there was a recession for want of a better term in the aerospace industry and a lot of those engineers were ended up working at golf companies well they they may have but i think because up until karsten got involved in the golf business if you think about who the club designers were most of them were players golfers that's right yeah absolutely right and uh or blacksmiths. <laughs> yeah, even before so, the pros, you bet. Right. And so uh, in real you know, real engineers probably didn't take the time to think about golf no. too much. Until, until it becomes but an once, industry that can reward them financially the way that they kind of Well, pretty, that, but so, I, think, I think golf companies realized, they looked at what Carson was doing and realized where he was coming from, yeah. and they thought, maybe I better hire an engineer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and now everyone has a team of engineers. Oh Every, yes, every. I'm not sure how many. I'm not sure how many fellows we have that work here now that have doctorates. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And that, also the, the track man and some of those um, ball oh, tracking sure. systems uh, were Ping right. not involved in some of the earliest iterations of that sort of technology. Or well, we were I'm involved in high. We were in high. We were involved in high speed video right. and photography mm-hmm. long before anybody else probably yeah, yeah um, we we had uh, we had several cameras that the only other people that owned them uh, were governments uh-huh. huh. 
right. that were used for for testing for for weapons. Yeah. So we we Karsten early on wanted to know what's going on at impact. At impact. And, yeah. And uh, and how people go there. It's kind of extraordinary. And it turns out, as with most things, Rob, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. <laughs> it's kind of what's right, happening, yeah. isn't it? The track man's right. changed the whole coaching business. Coaches have been coaching for oh, years. Like, sure. I never realized that that's what the club face was doing to produce that shot. And now we can do something different to try and fix that in the swing. Mm-hmm. Putting that aside, of course, when you're an innovator, as Carsten clearly was and as John has been and Ping's been at the forefront of that, you're bound to bump up against the rules makers from time to time. We already talked about issues with the USGA and the bench shaft earlier, but I suppose the big one that everyone remembers is the Groove case with Ping yes. and the USGA. W- were you with the company at the time? What are your memories of that? And for I those was. who might not be familiar, just give us a thumbnail sketch of what played out there because I think most of us believe that that case in some ways has affected how the governing body, bodies have governed technology in the time since. And not necessarily for the betterment of the game, but um, that's a whole different discussion. But what were your memories of what, mm. what unfolded there between the USGA and Ping? Um, well, I started in 86. And so Karsten had come out with, had put, came out with the I-2 in 82, but then he didn't put square grooves in until 84 or 5, when the USGA is the one that actually changed the rule on grooves to allow uh, the grooves to have parallel walls. Up until that point, the rules called... Right. So up to that point, the rules called for a Mm V-groove. The way I understand it, they changed... the Part of the reason for changing the rule was investment casting. Because with investment casting, you cannot cast a perfect V right. because part of the groove fills in at the bottom. Makes sense. And, and so part of that had to do, too, with metal woods because metal woods, the same situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the USGA decided to, uh, rather than have to fight about what a U and a V groove was, uh, they decided on their own, with no input from Ping at least, um, to write the rules so that the grooves could have a parallel face or a a face, you know, straight up and down face, or uh, walls. So um, one of our engineers was looking through the rule book and he spotted this rule change and he took it to Karsten, showed it to Karsten, and Karsten said, oh, I think we can use that. And so he designed the the square groove. Hmm. So the... uh, you know, the the problem with the with that groove uh, at first was that it had a little sharper edge, and it was taking the paint yeah off of golf balls. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> right. Um, so Titleist actually came to Karsten and asked him if he could do something to help alleviate that. So he Karsten said, well, sure. Uh, And so he put a little bit more of a radius on the edge of the grooves. So, you know, so it wasn't as sharp. And that that helped some, and then they came back to him and asked him if he could put a little more radius on, and he said, sure. He did that. Um, That's interesting that he was uh, collaborating with 
you know, people in the industry, obviously, in, in the on the ball side of the industry. Right. Yeah. He was, he, was, he was trying to accommodate them. Yeah. Um, so, but then, because of the success of the I-2, uh, or perhaps, I, I, anyway, because of the success of the I-2, um, some people started to complain that the I-2 spun the golf ball too much. And it was because of the square grooves. And this was an issue that was directly related to Mark Kalkovecchia, wasn't it? Who was hitting well, he some was, yes, that remarkable was, yeah, that shots. Was one of the, was the poster, the poster, poster boy for it. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so the USGA, in looking at this, they decided that uh, the the groove, the you know the measurement for grooves there was a certain width and then the space between the grooves became the problem because mm-hmm. they wanted a, a three to two ratio or three to one ratio um, so they wanted three you know a space as wide as three grooves between each groove and so what they decide instead of measuring from the wall of the groove they wanted to measure they wanted to count the radius is also part of the groove. Oh, okay. Which had nothing, there was no basis for that in any kind of engineering standard. And that's not the way they measured grooves before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by by coming up with that, they just, they determined that the grooves on the I-2 were too close together by about the thickness of $2 bills. Mm-hmm. Oh, Wow. And so, this is yeah, where, so this production this is issue. The, yeah, right. So this is where the problem started, and Karsten uh, just needed. You know, it became very important to him to prove that they were wrong about how they were measuring and wrong about what it, you know wrong about their way they wanted to go about measuring this would have ruffled yeah. his engineers feathers i'd imagine oh, a there's yes, no basis yeah. for making the original ruling and then b yeah. they're measuring well, it wrong as well way, so right? like suddenly i'm dealing yeah. with amateurs here i'm gonna to have to teach the usga oh. now how to do this stuff right yeah so so that's where all this uh-huh. all the problem became yeah. and uh, unfortunately carson because some people were labeling are clubs as cheaters uh-huh. that really went against Karsten's integrity and everything. It got quite acrimonious. And so he really became obsessed with yeah. proving that he was right. It was quite acrimonious yeah. towards the end, wasn't it? Right. So the the bad thing about that for us was that Karsten became so obsessed with that issue uh-huh. that he stopped thinking about new things. Other stuff, yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's understandable, so though, would, isn't it, yeah. a way? Oh, sure. In a way. I mean, that, Absolutely, yeah. And of course, Especially from an engineer's standpoint, well, that's right? right. If, yeah. if you know it doesn't matter and you're making right. me change my production line, uh, you know, a fact-based well, person based on, you know, science and engineering, it, it had to be, yeah, tough to swallow. Yes, yeah. Just, a, so, just was, somebody. Yeah, so it was a tough time. Somebody governing you who had no idea what they were talking about when you did, I imagine. <laughs> Less so than the production line or the money, because Pink was quite successful at that stage. I can't imagine, whilst money's always a part of business, it wouldn't have been the issue in that case. I, I always got the feeling that it was more about, exactly as you said, you know, that, that they'd got it wrong. And he couldn't, mm-hmm. he couldn't fathom that. He couldn't allow that to sort of stand in science, right. that they'd got it so oh, wrong. No. Exactly. Um, uh, and I, my 
my own feeling would have been that had it been another company who'd been at the centre of that, Carsten still would have been as obsessed with fighting that cause if it had been oh, somebody else's right. clubs. If it hadn't been Ping, it would he would have been just as obsessed, I suspect. I, um, I believe you're absolutely correct. Uh, yeah. Which is interesting. No. The, the fallout from that for the rest of the industry has been interesting in a way, hasn't it, Robin? I suppose this is the point I was getting to. That was kind of the last time the USGA just made a stand. So we're the rules makers and here's the rule, whether it made any sense or not. And that's kind of got us into trouble later down the track with parts of the rules where it would make sense to regulate more heavily, but having lost that case so badly, they seem to have been reluctant. We talked about the croquet putter before. They had no mm-hmm. scientific reason to be. They just said, we don't like the look of it. It's banned. And that was it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was banned. So it's been, a, it's been interesting the way that's played out since, hasn't it? That's had a huge impact on the game, that whole sort of ruling and, and that, that whole case between Ping and the USGA. It has. Um, but, you know, the, the later groove controversy, you know, a few years ago, yeah, uh, when that came up, John took that as a as a way to try to change the system, try to get the ch- system to work, have more uh, cooperation between the USGA and the manufacturers uh, as far as standards and things, mm-hmm. because the USGA can, or you know, they can just say no. That's you know, yeah. That's not conforming. Hmm. Um, so, uh, because of the the last groove, uh, you can call it a fiasco, that, Rob. You can call it a fiasco. Yeah, Feel free. I wouldn't say that. But the <laughs> last groove issue, uh, they now have established a, a, a protocol yeah. for making equipment changes that involves feedback from manufacturers. So a, a working relationship. Sort of because I seem to recall John was also. I interviewed him about this at the time too. He is adamant that the COR test, I don't know whether it's the same one they still run, but the COR test that the USGA introduced of firing a ball into a club face and then measuring the COR, mm-hmm. that that was wrong, that that was wrong in science. I recall he, he was uh, he mm-hmm. was unhappy with that at the time during that whole sort of dry. Let's get off sort of the controversies, but it's important. It's an important part of the company's history and an important part of the game's history, Rob. And, um, it is. You know, it truly is. It, yeah. it, it really is. It, What's the sit? Sorry, Connor. I've been hogging all this. Mind. I get off on these tangents. So I'm no, sure you've got a bunch right. of actual history questions. But, yeah, to let ask. me. I'll ask a question because uh, Rob and I kind of went back and forth on emails, and I think there's an interesting story behind it. Um, and the question really is this: How did Ping get into the export business? <laughs> this is a great story. Um, first, let me just say that um, we've talked about Louise a little bit, and so Louise is is. Uh, Louise is so important to this company, to this company and its development. Um, most people don't know that she was here every day, just like Karsten. She worked every day, just like Karsten. She was his closest business uh, advisor and confidant. Um, and she found out she named she's named more than uh, one putter. Mm-hmm. You know, she's named some of the equipment, and uh, she she's just extremely important to to this company and. I've often told people that uh, when I used to give tours around here and to tour groups, I would tell them the story I'm about to tell you about export. And uh, what I would tell people about Louise is uh, she was so important that I believe if Karsten had married a different young lady when he married Louise, that we probably would not be here today. Mm. 
that uh, Karsten might be in a garage someplace working on a club. <laughs> but yeah. still, in, still in a garage somewhere making a club, but, I think. Uh, we wouldn't be here. Uh-huh. That's how important Louise was. And so the, the export story, how we came to export was, um, you know, Karsten put, uh, as you know, he put uh, his address on the golf clubs. In the cavity, normally, uh, there was a, an address. In the Scottsdale clubs, there's a Scottsdale P.O. box. Um, so he did that for a very important reason. He wanted people to know where to find him because he knew he didn't have a lot of money to advertise with early in the early days. And so he wanted people to know where to find them, find him or find the clubs if they wanted another one. And so it worked. Uh, we would get postcards and letters from people wanting to buy a ping putter. Uh, back in the early days, Louise would get these letters. And one day she got a postcard from a gentleman in South Africa who had been to the States and bought a, bought a putter. And when he got back uh, to South Africa, a couple of his friends tried it, and they really liked it, and they wanted one too. So he wanted to buy a couple more putters from us. So uh, <clears throat> Louise checked into it and found out that to send these two putters, to export these two putters, there was a whole lot of complicated paperwork that had to be done um, and she told Karsten she goes this is so this is really complicated I don't know that we're going to be able to do it and of course Karsten didn't that wasn't the answer he wanted Karsten <laughs> one thing Karsten was a great marketer he wanted his clubs everywhere. he wanted to get his everywhere and so um, Louise did some more checking and she found out that um if they sent those two putters as a gift, there was no paperwork required. So the very first huh. exporter, export order left Ping as a no charge. No charge. Wow. That's quite Brilliant. Tough. But because of that, Louise uh, did, did some more investigating, and she found that uh, Arizona State University here, ASU in Tempe, uh, offered a seminar in exporting. And so she went out and she took that ex- she took that export seminar, and uh, she worked with uh, one of the people in the Arizona State government, a guy named Don Fry, uh, learning how to what needed to be done and how to export. And, and what, so this is fantastic. Became, that's amazing. This is how we became a worldwide a worldwide company. company. What, what unreal? What era? What yeah. what year was that, Rob? What year was that? Uh, that was actually in the mid to late mid sixties, I think. Okay. Because that would have been kind of at, at the start of that, really. Because I suppose right, golf companies were right. kind of global, but we had our own golf manufacturers here in Australia for the most part. And so mm-hmm. you, there were yeah. clubs from overseas that would come in during that time. But most of what you bought, and in fact, most of the club pros made woods and had available to them cast heads. They could put their own. No, but they would carve persimmon blocks in the back of the pro shop in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. for the members who'd bought them. It'd take them three or four weeks. They'd fit them and they'd make them. And So I suppose that's it's probably not the forefront, so to speak, but I wonder whether I doubt Carsten ever expected that that would happen clearly by the sound of it, that they'd end up being a worldwide company. But certainly I introduced Ping as one of the big four, I think. I think that's a fair assessment, eh? The big four manufacturers that we think of when we think of golf, the big global players. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. there are others, but well, he, yeah, he, uh, he saw no obstacle once once they were exporting. He saw no obstacle to uh, 
So when, like I say, they made a worldwide trip every summer. Yeah. To uh, to yeah. a lot of countries, yeah. and so they had uh, distributors set up in different countries. We, uh, you know, so Karsten saw no reason that we couldn't sell worldwide early on, and you know, that that really helped uh, grow the business. I'm sure faster than it would have without exporting. Yeah, indeed. You know. Rod, I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, this goes back to, I mean, something I had on a Twitter account some time ago about how uh, it's very rare for a golf company, specifically in equipment, to be 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Because to do that, what happens is you find, you go back to the days of like Tom Stewart in Scotland, uh, or, you know, even look at McGregor versus where they were in the market versus where they are today. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for a company to be innovative and take risk and then find success and continue to continue. In- innovate and take risk. Mm-hmm. And Ping's one of those stories that, you know, always seems to be on the leading front, which is why, you know, they're celebrating 60 years today. And I, I just want to mention that because I just think it's remarkable when you think about it, the history of some of the great golf companies. Uh, McGregor is a great example, not to, you know, put the bullet eye on them, but um, – <laughs> McGregor was the brand, mm-hmm. and they had a window that was a remarkable window, but it, it didn't last 60 years on top. Wilson, because, Wilson Hogan, yeah, Wilson, Max Fly. Obviously, Wilson's Dunlop. still around, and they're yeah. you know, making the comeback. But again, on the forefront of it, Ping yeah. from the you – know, maybe not you know, day one, but you know, year five till now, always innovating, always looking for – the next step for the the modern golfer and is one of the great reasons why they're one of the great companies today. So it's just for our listeners here, as you're thinking about not just why do I care about history, but history plays an important role in the clubs you play today. Why do you reckon that is, Rob? Because the the easy thing, and I think what happens to some of those names that Connor's mentioned there, of course, you get to a point where you become risk-averse you don't want to make the next innovation. You're on a good thing. And there, there's there's some danger in going the next step sometimes, isn't there? I think of the other big three and the big four that I think about. Callaway's, what, early 90s really launched? Mm-hmm. TaylorMade 80s. Titleist has been a golf brand forever. Um, I suppose they'd be the other ones who you might look to of a similar kind of heritage. But to, to maintain the courage to continue to innovate in a market where you're already having success, is that the key? Because it's very much a personality-driven company, Ping, isn't it? You, you've always known that. Well, we are, but, you know, we have a, we have a large advantage, I think. Uh, our advantage is that we are privately held. Mm. Oh, you bet. Uh, uh, we don't answer to stockholders. Uh, we don't have to worry about quarter what how we did this quarter. Um you know, we we can take a bigger we can take a risk if we if we and we don't look at it I don't believe uh, as taking a risk because we are so confident and we have such uh, competent people yeah. designing and working on our golf clubs and they have such great leadership and and mentors and and John and and now John K John's son and uh, and where we come from with Karsten I, you know and also. Because also the goal of the company is, yes, we'd like to be number one in any in any category, but more than anything, we still want to make the game easier for mm. people to play. Mm. 
we're not going to run out of yeah. We're not going to run out of you know. Not going to run out of Solheim's, are we, Rob? Is there a is there, is there a <laughs> line coming up that we're going to keep yes, producing? There a, yes, there is a line. <laughs> is uh, John K. Solheim is is our president. Mm-hmm. One of our presidents. He's president of the. Uh, that he's a uh, you know he's John's uh, oldest son. He works. Uh, he's uh, you know a trained engineer and a, t- a talented, much like his dad and his grandfather, and um, you know he also has his own way of looking at things, which is great because you get new kind of uh, necessary know, new ideas and things. Necessary, and he's, uh, I'd imagine. Right, jo- and uh, like I say, we have a we have a uh, we have a lot of young, smart engineers that work here. Uh, and what, what's really great about some of our engineers, and I've mentioned this to several of them, we have some engineers here that um, are very bright, but they have the ability to explain the principles and the ideas behind our design in ways that most people can kind of understand. How valuable is that? Yeah. It doesn't sound like gibberish, you know. Um, we have some young men that are able to describe um, what our equipment does and how it does it and why it does it in ways that people can understand. And I think that is that is very valuable. The uh, It's probably the ultimate... Um testament to ping i think that even those who don't play ping clubs or like them i think there's a genuine respect for the company amongst both your competitors and all of golfers i've always felt that about ping i actually play ping not for any other reason that i happen to luck into a, a set of ping i threes. if you'd ever like to see john solheim <laughs> bristle rob and i like them by the way i've had them for i've still play the i3 which is not doing much for you but uh, <laughs> they're still working for me if you ever want to see john bristle um just mentioned to him that you tried one of his three woods once and didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> that gets a reaction. I didn't mean it to, but that meeting I talked about earlier, something I, was, I mentioned I didn't carry a three wood. He said, why not? I said, I can't find one I like. And he said, oh, have you tried ours? I said, yes. And his eyes narrowed and he looked at me as though, <laughs> are you sure it was one of ours? And he, he became determined to uh, fit me up and sell me a three wood right there on the spot, I suspect. But he didn't I, I've that. seen that look. Yeah, I, yeah. I did too. I don't want to see it again. Um, <laughs> this, this is uh, one of those moments that might be edited out of the podcast. <laughs> kidding. Well, maybe. Does John listen to, to podcasts, Rob? You might have to skip him through that section. If I tell him about this one, he'll listen. He'll have a listen to it. We'll see what he has to say. <laughs> That'll determine whether he ever listens to another one ever again. Apologies to all the podcasters out there. We might have just cost you a customer. I think we should wrap it up. We're at nearly two hours, which is just crazy. But it's been yeah. fascinating, Rob, and I can't thank you enough for taking some time. We really have enjoyed it. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Glad to hear that. Hopefully Connor will get over there one day and you can take him around the – the, uh, well, it sounds like he's got a, a flight by, uh, I, I, booked look, already. Yeah, it's sure. unreal. I mean, I, d- I d- need to see all these things. Take your I camera. need to. It's not even a want to. It's a need. <laughs> need. Are you a ping player, so Connor? Not that, by the way, I, not they, that they me playing two. ping is an endorsement. In fact, it probably hurts you, if anything, Rob, that I play ping clubs because <laughs> I'm not the greatest ad for them. But uh, have you been a ping player over the years, Connor? I have. Unfortunately, I don't have ping irons in my bag. I'm so uh-huh. sorry, John, if you're listening. I do have a ping putter, uh, an answer, a newer model answer, and it's uh-huh. fantastic. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I think I don't think there's a golfer out there that hasn't had well, at least we appreciate that. one ping club. Well, no. It, it is 
one of the most interesting stories in golf, I think, Ping. And as I said, Rob, we can't thank you enough for taking some time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, mate. Certainly my pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Right, and, and let me say this to our listeners. Uh, first of all, thank you for listening. But uh, something to take home for you. If you don't play Ping's technology, you're still playing, playing Ping's a technology. variation of Ping's technology. <laughs> That's right. Whether it's the cavity back, whether it's perimeter waiting, yeah. uh, whether it's you know the grooves that they fought for for you, yeah. um, you are playing – a variation of Pink's technology. It's they have had that big of an impact on the game of golf and the equipment we play. And I hope you all took a little bit of that appreciation away from what Ping has given to us over the history of our of their existence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lovely speech, Connor. Thank you for being a part of it today. Also, I always enjoy having a chat with you, mate. And this was a great one for you to organise. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that. Absolutely. And that's episode five of the Talking Golf History podcast in the books. Finally, in fact, you probably could have written a book in the time it took us to get through all that, but there was so much <laughs> to get through. I hope that you guys have enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We'll be back to it all again in two weeks' time here on the Talking Golf History podcast. <laughs> <laughs>